Hello all and welcome to a special and slightly different episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast this week. I'm still Paul, the host and the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are still of course you guys. But this week finds the second collaboration between the True Crime Enthusiast and Jess Carter at the Outlines podcast. So this episode will be a bit different from the norm. Last year on the show, when me and Jess first worked together on something, we covered the unsolved 1974 murder of Josephine Backshall in a joint episode. Jess went out there visiting the scenes connected with the crime, and in her episode she recounted what was known about the case, as you can best do, I think, if you can get to the locations. Whereas for my part, I looked at the theories about the murder and any possible reasons why Josephine may have been killed. With an unsolved case, it's always difficult because they tend to always raise more questions than provide answers, as I'm sure you'll see this week. But there shouldn't be a stumbling block to any true crime podcasters. These forgotten cold cases shouldn't be. They have as much right to be in the public conscious as the McCann kid, for example. And however hard it is, I enjoy a challenge, as does Jess. Jess and I developed a great working partnership at the time, and we agreed to collaborate once again. And for a long time, we've been trying to find a suitable case and time when we can release another joint collaboration. Well, you lucky people, that time has arrived. The case that we've chosen to collaborate on is a real one of gothic horror, and it's structured much the same way that we covered Josephine's case in. Jess has been out there with her trusty Watson, Gemma, visiting the scenes and doing the digging through the archives and records. Whereas for my part, I'm looking into what can be surmised about the crime, any motives for it, and I'm looking at some persons of interest whose names have long been associated with the case. Therefore, the episode will seem completely out of context if you haven't listened to Jess's episode first. Now, I'm not going to rehash or go over in depth the details known of the murder and the subsequent investigation. Jess has done that already in a usual, fantastic way, and my part won't make very much sense if you haven't heard the episode on Outlines first. They're released at the same time, and they go together in tandem. As ever with cases on the show, this episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised as ever. Details included are not designed to shock or offend, as ever, they're integral to depict the crime in question. So please head over and check out Jess's episode on the Outlines podcast first. As I said, both have been released at the same time, and there's a link in my own show notes to Jess's episode. If you've already been and listened to Jess's episode on Outlines, then please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we look at some theories about the Tattingstone suitcase murder. Well then, Bernard Michael Oliver, what are your thoughts about his death after hearing Jess's episode? I feel I should mention beforehand before we get going that the case is a frustrating one because there are so many gaps in the timeline and reports, there's so much not known, and during research, although there are theories and reports of investigative routes undertaken that are reported over multiple sources, there's no explanation as to how they were arrived at and there are also conflicting reports. During research, several articles concerning the crime were found that were so vague and unsubstantiated, I haven't even included them in detail here, if I even have at all. We don't know very much for definite, but we can make educated guesses based on the evidence available, as we do when we cover any unsolved crimes here on the show. Therefore, any theories that I do profess in the episode have to be just that, theories. I never profess what I say to be definitive and right, but then nor would I put out something I knew to be ludicrous nonsense either, would I? Think of it as me thinking out loud. But Bernard's is a case, as I've said, that raises more questions than it provides answers, and using the time-honoured method of who, what, when, where, how, we can finally have a look at why. Jess has described and depicted all of these a lot more in detail in her episode, so I'll only sketch over each a bit here before coming back to look at the whole thing encompassed in a bit more detail. So our who is a dark-haired, nondescript young man, a 17-year-old North London warehouse worker named Bernard Michael Oliver. 
By all accounts, a quiet lad, a bit of a loner, and one described as being a bit in his shell, retreated into himself. On the evening of Friday the 6th of January 1967, Bernard was at home with his family in the Muswell Hill district of North London, where his father remembers Bernard being in the house having had his tea, cleaned himself up, polished his shoes and settled down for the evening. His father went out to visit Bernard's elder sister who lived nearby early that evening, claiming that he was out no longer than an hour, and before he left, according to him, Bernard had claimed he was either going to watch television for the evening, or may even take the family dog for a walk, a poodle who by all accounts was Bernard's pride and joy. So it's here that we run into the first ambiguity with the case, because other reports exist that claim Bernard had told his father that he was planning to spend the evening with friends. Other reports go so far as to claim that he was acknowledged as going to a party that Friday evening. Regardless, the last time Bernard was seen by his father was when he nipped out to visit Bernard's sister on that Friday evening. An hour later, when his dad returned, the lad was gone from the house, never to be seen again. His father reportedly asked Bernard's younger siblings where he'd gone, and they gave a seemingly vague answer that they weren't too sure, but they thought that he may have gone to the nearby cinema where the film The Ten Commandments was showing. This is a report found over multiple sources concerning the case, and we'll go into this angle a bit further later on. Bernard's father reportedly waited up for him to return for a number of hours before finally going to bed, and when Bernard still hadn't returned the next day, his father went and reported him as a missing person to police. Nothing was heard of Bernard for almost two weeks before his remains were identified by his father as a result of a macabre photograph that appeared in the press, the likes of which, although you can find much worse online nowadays, was a bold step 52 years ago for the press, and not something that's been repeated often, if ever. The photograph that appeared, one that had been carefully arranged by morticians, was of the severed head of an as-then unidentified murder victim, a young man whose naked body had been discovered dismembered into eight pieces, placed in two suitcases and dumped unceremoniously under a hedge in a field in the Suffolk village of Tattingstone, where the gruesome discovery had been found on the 16th of January 1967. He remained unidentified and police had taken the drastic measure of arranging for newspapers to publish the grisly photograph in an attempt to identify the young man. I mean, I don't know by all means if everyone did. I think it's claimed that some were only brave enough to do this. But it was published anyway. After seeing the photograph published in a newspaper, Bernard's father recognised his missing son and went and sadly identified his remains. Cause of death was determined at the post-mortem to have been strangulation, although it doesn't say whether this was manually or with the use of a ligature, from facing or from behind. Perhaps this was unable to be determined. There are no reported marks of any visible cuts, bruising or puncture wounds to any of the body parts bar those of dismemberment. There are no reports of any signs of restraints on the wrists or ankles. But there are reports of several cuts to the back of the head suggested to have been made by a knife, although depth, numeracy and exact positioning of these are not reported. The post-mortem also reported evidence that the young man had been sexually assaulted, although this was amended later to say that there was evidence of recent sexual activity. Now this was just before homosexuality was legalised in the United Kingdom in 1967 and was still a very underground practice for want of a better word. The body was said by a consultant surgeon who examined the remains to have been expertly dissected. With the exception of one of the knee joints, the body was dismembered perfectly without marking any of the bones. It suggested that whoever had dismembered the youth had had experience or medical knowledge. The exact date and time when Bernard died cannot be ascertained because it's never been clearly revealed just how long he'd been dead for. There are conflicting reports of at least two days before the body was discovered to no more than two days. This is pretty much unclear. Yet he was last seen by his family on the evening of Friday the 6th of January 1967 
and if the two-day marker that it was estimated at was correct, and his body was discovered on Monday the 16th of January, then if he was killed two days before, there's a full week that Bernard is unaccounted for, so he has to have been somewhere in this time period. Was he held prisoner over this time? Or was he staying somewhere with someone of his own volition? Now this has been suggested because it's claimed that sometime before his death, sometime between his disappearance and his death, Bernard had had his nails manicured and had had a haircut. Yet he was said to have habitually bitten his nails, so I pondered at this a bit. How can you manicure bitten nails? And as for the haircut, well it's reported that to get the, pa- get the photograph in the paper of the dismembered head, the morticians cleaned the head up brushed his hair uh, one publication says so i'd be more inclined to think that this little mystery about the haircut is as a result of morticians preparing the body for the press photograph rather than a gesture from a partner i do believe this to be a vague and misleading line of inquiry the where about the crime presents the same problem because the murder scene itself has never been discovered it was obviously not carried out in that field just off station road in tattingstone It must have been carried out in a premises that afforded the killer or killers, because I believe there's more than one person involved here, a degree of privacy and space to carry out a murder and dismemberment. But there exists a 75 mile plus distance from where Bernard was last definitely seen at the Oliver family home in Muswell Hill, North London, to the remote spot where his dismembered body was found. It could have occurred literally anywhere in between, it's impossible to determine. It could have been in London, it could have been somewhere in Suffolk, it could have been at a location pretty much anywhere. The lack of a determinable crime scene is one of the main barriers in solving the case. So the who, the what, the when and the where have been recapped here. Jess has covered this much more in full in her episode as I've said. My part is to now look at everything that's known about the crime to suggest a possible motive and to then list some of the names that are commonly mentioned in conjunction with the crime and put forward as possible suspects. Let's start with a body being found. It was discovered by a farm worker called Fred Buggy or Fred Bergy, whatever his name is, however you pronounce it. Early on the windswept morning of Monday the 16th of January 1967 in a field adjacent to Station Road and the main A137 Ipswich to Manningtree Road. It's unclear which of these roads would have provided a gap for vehicular access to the field back in 1967 as available police photographs don't show this exactly clearly. Fred spotted two battered suitcases by a hedge that had been dumped for want of a better word and because this is an unusual sight in a farming field, I mean they don't grow do they suitcases, he went to investigate. Perhaps the farm had had issues with fly tipping over the previous months or something. Fred later claimed that he took one look inside, noticed the body parts and some clothing as he described it inside and it took him an hour to compose himself before he reported what he'd found. He even went back to work on his field. Now you can perhaps understand it's a shocking thing to find, it must be, but taking an hour to compose yourself, I raised my eyebrows out a bit. It's also reported that Fred never again spoke of his discovery by the statements of the police and the press afterwards. Now I'm not suggesting any involvement here on his part, I just think it would be something that had you rushing a phone immediately. And to be honest with you, it would quite scare you, wouldn't it? It would scare me. I'd be straight off to raise the alarm. I suppose, though, you don't know how you'll react until you find a couple of suitcases full of body parts yourself, do you? And again, I think it's something that you're bound to have spoken about over the years. I mean, it must be a hell of a tale to tell, isn't it? So police were called and attended, and being such a close-knit community, which again, Jess describes in her episode much better than I ever could, having researched it thoroughly, described the area and its history, and visited the area twice, well, word will have gotten around like wildfire about what had been discovered, and press was soon at the scene. The search for images and the newspaper articles unearthed during research suggest that at least initially... 
press were able to get right close and up to the scene, and more than one has reported that there had been very little visible effort made to cordon off the area, meaning that an already difficult scene to obtain any possible forensic evidence from may have been even further compromised. Photographs are available of the two suitcases in situ at the scene, as well as after their recovery at the police lab. I'll touch upon the suitcases themselves momentarily. Why this choice of body dump though? A number of possibilities are raised here. I find it strange and to me it seems a hurried one in a place where the killer is unfamiliar with the area. Hear Jess's description of Tattingstone and see the conclusions that you reach. Apart from the wonder, which in all honesty sounds about as exciting as debating 18th century radicalism with Jacob Rees-Mogg, it seems to be a proper nondescript place. Why here? Why, why indeed? Why there? The site in the field is directly across from one of the two pubs in Tattingstone, and as it's a pretty rural area anyway, I believe that there'd be a better, more secluded location, away from prying eyes, to dump a body if the killer was more than slightly familiar with the area. I do believe it's a general area known to them, because as people we use mental maps of places that we're familiar with, but why this exact spot raises questions. The suitcases could have been deposited at a landfill site, for example, of which there was reported to be a disused one just a few hundred yards from where the cases were found, or they could be placed into a stretch of water. I mean, the sea isn't too far away from Tattenstone, or there has to be many ponds or waterways nearby. Could it possibly have been an attack of conscience, or even an act of contempt? and the killer left the suitcases there in an undignified location, knowing that they'd be found, and indeed wanting them to be found. But if so, why were they not left in an even more conspicuous place? There are several possibilities, but to me, it suggests that the killers have been travelling around looking for a suitable place to leave the suitcases, until they, for want of a better word, have just broken and needed to dump the body and get away. The nerve has got the better of them here. I mean, why would you plan to dump a body where it will stand out across from a busy pub where you could be spotted for any other reason than your nerve having gone and fear of discovery being too great to ignore? You needed to be away. Understandably, much was made of the suitcases during the investigation. Again, Jess has described these and the contents thoroughly in her episode and there are pictures available of the cases. Check both the outlines and the True Crime Enthusiast Show Instagram pages after this for these pictures and other ones concerning the case. They're both medium-sized suitcases. They look well-used and battered. One is cream with plastic corners and edging and rusted-looking locks. The other similar but grey-blue in colour. No workable fingerprints were able to be lifted from either case to help further the investigation. The blue-grey case has the initials P.V.A. stenciled in large dark letters on the right-hand side of the handle. And one of the cases, it was not revealed which one, reportedly contained a blood-stained hand towel bearing a laundry mark QL42. Also contained in the suitcases, again unsure of which one exactly, but believed to be the one containing the torso, was a sports jacket of a common and widely available make tentatively identified as being Bernard's own jacket. Now this jacket was largely empty, bar for a single box of matches that were established as being of a type made in Israel, although again it's not stated if this was a common and widely available brand in the UK. Although the hand towel was reported as being bloodstained, there's no report of how fresh the blood was, if it was Bernard's blood group, and as to the extent of bloodstaining in the suitcases either. So the investigation into the origin of these cases was massive at the time, with trying to trace the source of the initials PVA stenciled on it a massive priority. It was considered at the time that it may have been a military issue suitcase of the type used by seafarers, and PVA are the initials of a service person, but I don't believe this to be the case. I know from having to do it myself when I was in the forces that although you do have to label every single item that you issued with when you're in there, 
you almost always place a corresponding part of your individual service number as well as initials with the items, usually the last three digits of your service number. This is to identify individuals who may have similar initials apart because everybody's service number is unique to each service person. Inquiries were focused around ships and local ports to investigate this angle, but nothing ever came of it and nothing was ever established. So although these are seemingly good leads, and crimes have been solved on the basis of much less evidence than this, the provenance of them has never been established. Extensive inquiries into each piece of evidence led nowhere at the time, and haven't in subsequent re-examinations of the case. Jess and myself discussed this and we've had the thought that the jacket, the matches and the towel with the laundry mark may have been deliberately placed into the cases as red herrings to muddy the waters. I mean, certainly with a kill, would a killer with the degree of organisation that's shown here, I mean, he was able to successfully get away with murder after all, would he have used two suitcases that could be possibly traced to him with something as obvious as his initials? It's very doubtful, I think. I believe that the suitcases could have been easily obtained from somewhere, perhaps a junk shop or a rag and bone man, and they were used for this purpose. If they did belong to the killer, he would have used them in the confidence that they would have been so old and inconspicuous that they would definitely never be able to be tra ever traced to him, and as they never were. Why was the body placed into suitcases anyway, and why the need for dismemberment at all, which is a time-consuming and messy effort? Why not just dump or even bury Bernard? Perhaps he was dismembered for practicality reasons. Perhaps the murder took place in a flat somewhere where there was no availability to bury a body, and it needed to be removed. I do find it strange that suitcases were used rather than refuse bags, but this may have been to not draw attention when removing the body from wherever it was. A witness may tend to remember someone removing several bulky looking bin bags and loading them into a car, but two suitcases is quicker and also inconspicuous. Also, why place just Bernard's jacket into the suitcase? Is If, of course, it was his jacket. This could possibly have been to soak up any blood staining and to prevent it seeping out which would lead to discovery, perhaps to even prevent staining to the vehicle that the cases were transported in. But the absence of any reports of the suitcases being saturated with blood suggests that the body was placed inside them long after death, and any blood staining to it and the towel inside is only residual. I believe that the only other possible reason to include the jacket is to ensure that attention was drawn to the matches to steer investigators down a blind alley and so further away from the killer. It was never established if Bernard smoked or not, and if he didn't smoke, then why would he have the matches? Why not place Bernard's other clothes inside the cases as well, as these were never found? Were they given to someone else, or were they kept as a macabre trophy? And why Bernard as a victim himself? If you look at any article concerning the crime, before long, the angle of Bernard being a rent boy comes up. There was evidence, as we've said at post-mortem, of him having had sex before death, and although at first he was described as having been raped, it's long since been amended to evidence of him having sexual activity, thus implying that at least in part, the sex may have been consensual. In the absence of DNA identification being non-existent at the time, it's unable to ascertain if this was from one partner or a number of partners. And it should be noted, of course, that as no one ever came forward and admitted being in a relationship with Bernard, the possibility remains that he wasn't homosexual and he was indeed raped. Bernard was described as a bit of a quiet lad and there were no confirmed reports of him having any serious, if any, girlfriends. By all accounts, this was a boy from a close family, although a family that had been split when his parents had separated a year before his death. He was reported as having retreated into his shell somewhat after his mother left, had he found some comfort in the company of older men. An unnamed friend of his was quoted in one article as saying that just before Christmas 1966, 
Bernard told him that he had three girlfriends on the go and had to buy a Christmas present for each, only to later dismiss this and tell the same friend not to have anything to do with women. As though his relationships had gone sour was the impression that his friend had gotten. Was this an overcompensation and a bit of a smokescreen though? Is it possible that Bernard had invented these girlfriends to keep his true sexuality a secret? And had he found a source of comfort or easy money at the time, having sex with older men at a time where homosexuality was a criminal offence? And was this because he was a target, a vulnerable young man, for a predatory paedophile to groom? Bernard's described in many articles concerning the case as having mild learning difficulties. The extent to this is not known at all, but he's reported as having attended a school for children with special needs, and was largely described as being in his shell a bit, a bit of a loner, and acting and appearing younger in years than he actually was. Is it possible that someone at his school groomed him for immoral purposes? Actions that we sadly know have precedent in number, don't they? I mean, it's not unheard of for teachers to do things, horrific things like that. Or was Bernard of homosexual persuasion anyway? His family and the friends that he did have have never alluded to him being homosexual, but it has to be remembered here that at the time of his death, homosexuality was illegal and considered almost shameful. It was certainly not accepted as it is today. It is possible that friends or perhaps even his family members may have had an idea about this, they may have even knew about it, but never said anything for fear of getting into trouble or besmirching the family name. Now I know it sounds unreal that, and I have absolutely no wish to sound disrespectful here, but it was a different world back then, and I do believe that this was a very real possibility. It's also a very real possibility that this was a young man who was unsure of his sexuality and he may have been approached and offered money from men for sexual favours. It may have struck something in Bernard, he may have welcomed the attention and affection, he may have enjoyed feeling desired and as we said before, he may have discovered a new source of income for himself, promiscuous homosexual men. He may have been even more appealing to some because he seemed and looked younger in his years. The night that he disappeared, the Friday. Cinemas were at the time a notorious meeting place for clandestine homosexuals. The dark and quiet, away from prying eyes areas were a welcome haunt, and one persistent story about the night that Bernard disappeared is that he'd headed out to watch the 1956 film The Ten Commandments, which was reportedly showing at the local cinema. Now it struck me that, was this the type of film that a 17-year-old boy would have wanted to have gone to watch? Or had he gone there to the cinema for a pre-arranged meeting with someone? It's not reported as to Bernard taking a bag of clothing out with him that evening, wherever he actually went, so it's doubtful that he'd planned to be away for at least no longer than overnight. Had he met someone who he knew, had perhaps met a number of times before, and who'd offered him a sum of money to attend a party, which is a code word at the time for pre-arranged homosexual orgies. This was certainly an area of interest that was a big focus of the initial investigation in 1967, and several properties, both in London and in the Suffolk area, were looked at where it was reported that these types of goings-on had occurred at. Perhaps Bernard, a bit naive, having his learning difficulties as he did, didn't fully understand the situation and was coerced into going along by someone he knew. Perhaps whilst there he saw something or someone he wasn't supposed to. Perhaps he was asked to do something that he didn't want to do and he resisted, resulting in his death. This is where the absence of a defined crime scene is most frustrating because we can only speculate. I don't believe that Bernard headed off to Suffolk for a party. I believe more likely that if he was taken to one, it was one that was held in London. I also don't believe that he'd planned to be away for a number of days. He had a job to go back to on the Monday, his warehouse job in Crouch End. He had a dog that he was absolutely devoted to and would not likely have left. And would he really have worried his family to the point 
but they had to report him as a missing person. It's also not clear as to when exactly he was killed, and I do believe myself this to be closer to the time he was reported missing, rather than the discovery of his body. If he was still alive for a full week after he was reported missing, then he has to have been kept somewhere, and he didn't kick up a fuss, or was spotted trying to escape, or perhaps call home. But why ultimately kill him? I believe there are several possible reasons. Random abduction. Although it is, of course, a possibility, I don't believe this is the case. There are no reports of anyone witnessing a youth being dragged into a vehicle anywhere in busy North London, and this just doesn't feel like a random abduction. It it just doesn't sit right. I believe Bernard went somewhere willingly, if not with his killer, then with someone he knew who introduced him to his killer. Was it a killing out of jealousy, revenge or robbery? I think that all of these are so unlikely that they can be dismissed. Jealousy and revenge are passionate motives. They would more likely involve a knife or physical violence. And for what? For someone to commit such a horrific crime, the motive and likely suspect would surely have been known if feeling was that strong to do something to this extent. The same with robbery. A 17-year-old youth, a crouch-end warehouse worker, is an unlikely lucrative target. And the violence, although it may be part of any of these potential motives, would surely not involve abduction, male rape and then dismemberment, but such a su- small sum of money or revenge, highly unlikely. So predominantly the motive that we come back to is of a sexual one, possibly as part of a sex game gone wrong and the boy died as, a resu- as the result. This may indeed have been an accidental death, The actions of disposal and concealment are certainly criminal, as would the sex itself at the time have been, but death may have been as the result of an accidental strangling during sex. Yet there's no sign here of the killer having panicked. He didn't abandon the body instantly, horrified at his actions and desperate to dispose of Bernard. Instead, he was able to think clearly, drain the body of blood and then expertly dismember it into eight neat pieces likely being the head, torso, two arms and the legs severed into two at the knee. He was then able to neatly pack the parts into two suitcases and transport them to the Tattingstone field where they were dumped, all without being seen. Or was Bernard always intended to be killed and the strangulation is part of the killer's ultimate thrill, as was the dismemberment as much as practicality? Such things you would think are the stuff of nightmares and kind of things you see in horrific films, aren't they? But what you have to remember is, by that exact time, many miles away, Fred West had begun his career of doing and getting off exactly on that. So stranger and sicker things have happened. Or did Bernard see or hear something that he shouldn't have? Perhaps there were even younger boys involved wherever he was taken, which he objected to and spoke up about. Perhaps he recognised someone and was killed to retain their anonymity. Or did Bernard threaten someone with blackmail? A very real possibility concerning the illicit clandestine overtones of the crime. Was he a threat to someone that needed to be removed? Do you see now what I mean about a frustrating case? Because with all of this... All everything that I mentioned, we just don't know for sure. There are so many gaps in the information, it's unreal. No one was ever charged in connection with the crime, and it was only several years later that the emergence of a few names in connection with the murder came forward, some of which will be familiar ones to the listener. Again, though, there are frustrating gaps in the information here, It's unclear how some of these names have come into the limelight, and whilst they've been suggested, it should also be noted again that no one was ever directly accused of the crime itself. Strongly suspected, sure, but not directly accused. Persons of Interest 1 and 2 The Cray Twins Now I'm not going to insult the intelligence of any listener and explain who the Cray Twins are. It's unlikely that if you're listening to a true crime podcast that you've never heard of Ronnie and Reggie and their criminal exploits. 
in the words of colourful London gangland face Mad Frankie Fraser, Everyone in the East End loved the craze. No woman got mugged and no children were tampered with. Yeah, we'll see about that last part, Frankie. Now, I wasn't too impressed with the recent Tom Hardy film version about the craze, though. In fact, I fell asleep through it. I thought it was boring. Give me the one starring the Spandau Ballet Kent Brothers any day. That's much better. I know this much is true. Sorry, worse than only Spandau Ballet gag that I've ever done, and I will never ever repeat another one. I'm sure that you equally know that Ronnie Cray was homosexual, with a fondness for younger males, and he reportedly had a relationship and took part in multiple group sex orgies with then-conservative politician Lord Robert Boothby. Politicians and sex scandals, I know what you're thinking, that stretches credibility, doesn't it, eh? But what do the Cray twins have to possibly do with the Tattingstone suitcase murder? John Pearson, author of the definitive book about the Crays, The Profession of Violence, notes that these group sex orgies which were held at Ronnie Cray's Cedra Court flat in Hackney played host to other prominent political figures such as ex-Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe, who was the subject of a recent series, I think, with Hugh Grant in it, starring as in the air, which I didn't watch, but I did hear good things about, and Labour's Tom Dryberg, and that they included underage boys in these orgies, with some being as young as just 10 years old. Pearson further claims that any scandals involving the craze and government figures remained covered up through the many government contacts that the twins had at the time that went all the way through Whitehall and allegedly straight to number 10. A cousin of the craze, Ronnie Hart, also admitted that the brothers would procure young boys for Boothby in exchange for certain favours, and other various gang members have also given testimonials to this extent. Ex-Cray henchman Bobby Teal, who gave evidence against the twins at their trial for murder, claims that the reason he informed on the brothers in 1969 was due to his anger at Ronnie Cray's sexual interest in his younger brother. Teal said, I knew the gangster, who had raped and abused a string of young men, never stopped until he got what he wanted. As soon as he went for my brother, I knew I couldn't walk away. You had to keep your wits about you if you were a young man, and Ronnie really fancied you. Another gang member claimed that he overheard Ronnie threatening to hurt a reluctant young boy unless he had sexual relations with Lord Boothby, and an East End character, who remained nameless but who knew the twins, also reported to the Daily Mirror. Word used to go out that the Crays were on their way to a certain pub, and all the good-looking boys used to piss off, because otherwise, if Ronnie asked you to go back to the house, you had to go back, and that was it. So, in addition to the orgies that were held around London in different places, the Crays reportedly also had links to the Suffolk area, an area that they were familiar with having been evacuees there during the Second World War, and one where they owned a property, somewhere relatively near a small Suffolk village called Tattingstone. It was also reported that in September 2000, just before his death from bladder cancer, Reggie Cray had confessed to a previously unknown murder to a former cellmate of his, Pete Gillett, as well as while being interviewed for the BBC documentary Reggie Cray, The Final Word. In Cray's words, the unidentified victim was dismissed as being just a young gay boy. No further details, dates or locations about this supposed murder were ever revealed but it has been suggested that this could be a reference to Bernard's murder, although the confession is more widely believed to relate to the disappearance of a man named Edward Mad Teddy Smith in 1967. But nothing has ever been substantiated about this, and neither Ronnie nor Reggie Cray were ever charged with any other murders bar the ones that they were sentenced to life imprisonment for. No hard evidence exists to suggest that the Crays have any culpability in Bernard's murder, yet their names do consistently crop up when researching the case. 
Another name that's constantly linked with a Tattinson suitcase murder is that of celebrated 1960s record producer Joe Meek. When police in the Tattinson investigation announced that it was their intent to interview all of the homosexual men in London, this would have included Joe Meek, the closet homosexual who was convicted in 1963 for importuning for immoral purposes in a public toilet. Meek, who was an already paranoid drug user, was according to some accounts absolutely terrified of being questioned over this, as there are unsubstantiated reports that at one time Bernard Oliver had worked as a tape stacker in Meek's studio, which was quite near to Bernard's North London home. On the 3rd of February 1967, just two weeks after Bernard's body was discovered, Meek killed himself after shooting dead his landlady, Violet Shenton. Meek was never spoken to in connection with the Tattingstone case, no evidence to suggest his involvement in the case bar remarkable coincidence and sensationalism was ever found. And his is a name that will crop up as a part of a future episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, possibly an upcoming Patreon episode because his story is strange enough and interesting to warrant an episode of its own. But the most commonly mentioned suspect in the case only came to light many years afterwards. In 2004, documents released under the Freedom of Information Act revealed that the prime suspects in the Tattinson suitcase murder were considered by police to be two medical doctors, Martin Bruce Reddington and John Russell Biles. The pair are widely acknowledged as the most likely suspects in the case, although how exactly their names came into the frame is unknown. It's yet another of the frustrating gaps of information one runs into whilst researching the case. There's no hard or physical evidence connecting them to it either. What there is, although it's suggestive, is circumstantial at best. There's little information available for research about either man, nor me or Jess were unable to find any photographs of either, and both of them are now long dead, so their possible culpability will now never be known. No charges concerning the crime were ever raised against either man, and reportedly, only one of them was ever spoken to concerning the murder. The body of 42-year-old John Russell Biles was found in a bedroom of the Prince of Wales Hotel in the Australian town of Proserpine in northern Queensland on Sunday, January the 19th, 1975, very close to the 8th anniversary of the discovery of Bernard's body. Biles had taken his own life in a drug overdose, having booked into the hotel under the assumed name of John Matthews. Biles is described in press reports about the death as being a former ship's surgeon, although confirmation of this and dates and places of where he might have worked as this are unavailable to find. It transpired that in the 1960s, Biles had a South London medical practice and was one of more than 2,000 people who were interviewed about Bernard Oliver's murder at the time of the 1967 investigation, eight years before. At the time of his death in 1975, Biles was wanted for extradition back to England as he'd been named as part of the Holy Trinity paedophile ring, some of whose members were convicted for serious sexual crimes at Leeds Crown Court in June 1975. The so-named Holy Trinity was a group of professional men that stood trial on charges of indecently assaulting several boys aged between 7 and 16 years old over a substantial period of time and conspiring to contravene the Sexual Offences Act, the Obscene Publications Act and the Post Office Act in a scandal that was centred around the Holy Trinity Church in Huddersfield in West Yorkshire. It was alleged that the ring had used the church and its vicarage as a base for the nationwide systematic grooming and abuse of young boys, which had been photographed and filmed and then distributed to pornographic magazines across Europe to places such as Copenhagen and Amsterdam, where child pornography was at the time legal. Yes, legal. Awful, that, eh? Some of the sexual abuse depicted took place in the church, in the church crypt, even in front of the church altar where mock weddings were performed that incorporated who knows what. 
it's not really something that I want to think about too much that will leave that rabbit hole for another episode, I think. Out of five men who were named and charged with these offences, only three stood trial for them, these being the Reverend John Poole, who was the cleric at the Holy Trinity Church, Raymond Varley, a former childcare worker and photographer, and Clive Wilcock, who was a schoolteacher. All were found guilty after a week-long trial and received varying lengthy prison sentences for their vile activities. But the two who had absconded, one was a man named Jack Nichols, which there is little information available about for research, as is the theme of the case. It's not known who he was, the extent of his involvement, or whether he did ultimately face trial or not. And the other person was Dr. John Russell Biles, who was named as, although being based in London, part of the network heavily involved in both production and distribution of the obscene publications. During the trial, Biles is said to have been described as evil in his absence. And it wasn't the first time that Biles had been accused of practices of indecency such as this either. As far back as September 1963, Biles had been committed for trial along with a man he shared a flat in Kensington with, James William Holsall, accused of the indecent assault of a boy of 16. The case was dismissed in November of that year and both Biles and Holsall were discharged. Biles had done a flit to Australia long before the Holy Trinity trial. At some point during the early police inquiries into the ring in the early 1970s, but on the 17th of December 1974, he was arrested in Melbourne. He was bailed, pending facing application for his extradition to England on December the 27th, which he failed to appear for, and it was a month later that Biles was found in the hotel room in Queensland, having taken his own life, and was identified as being the fugitive doctor by his fingerprints. Three notes were found beside Biles's body in the hotel room which were addressed to Scotland Yard, one to his family, and one to another doctor, Dr Martin Bruce Reddington, the man who had posted Biles's bail money a month before. The note to Scotland Yard apologised for Biles's actions, although it didn't go into any detail about what these may have been, and it threw no light on the Tattingstone murder. It stopped short of any confession. After his death, among the allegations made against Biles was that over a period of several years, he'd regularly invited boys to his, at the time, South London surgery, given them alcohol and persuaded them to commit indecent acts. While they were doing these, he took photographs and filmed them, which were then sold to pornography publishers in Denmark, leading to his involvement with the Holy Trinity paedophile network. There is also the unsubstantiated claim that Biles had once admitted murdering a cabin boy and cutting up his body, although who he admitted this to, and when and where this alleged murder happened, even why he admitted to it, have never been revealed and therefore cannot be ascertained. But you would get a different doctor, wouldn't you, if he was yours? Oof. Dr Martin Bruce Reddington is even more difficult to research. It's known that in the early 1960s, Colchester-born Reddington had a medical practice in Muswell Hill in London. Some sources claim one that was very near to where Bernard Oliver lived. By all accounts, Reddington indulged in similar practices to the alleged ones of Biles, highlighted by the 1965 arrest warrant issued for him on charges of buggery and indecent assault with young males. Before any arrest could be effected though, Reddington fled to the sanctuary of first South Africa, then on to Australia in the late 1960s or early 1970s. He was certainly in Australia by 1971, because six years later, in February 1977, he was charged at the Central Court in Sydney with committing an indecent assault on a male which was said to have occurred sometime between the 1st of December 1971 and July the 15th 1973. At this time, 45-year-old Reddington was the medical practitioner of Turramurra, an upper North Shore suburb of Sydney, although how long he'd held this position is unknown. 
nor are there any records available of, her, of any findings in the case, nor any sentencing. Reddington can also be placed there at the end of 1974, as he was to post bail money of $2,000 for Biles following his arrest there in December 1974. By all accounts, Reddington also made several return visits to the UK from the late 60s onwards, and yet the warrant for the 1965 allegations was never executed for some reason, nor was he ever extradited from Australia to face these charges. Where he seems to have been named as a person of interest in the Bernard Oliver investigation is another one of the frustrating and vague snippets available about the case. When the unsolved crime was reappealed ten years after it had occurred in 1977, it's reported that a private investigator came forward, her name has never been revealed, claiming to recognise the suitcase initialed PVA as belonging to one used by no less than three men who frequented a laundrette in Muswell Hill, and used the case to carry their washing in. One of these men was Reddington, who she identified from a photograph. It was reported, however, that it was ultimately decided that there was insufficient evidence to extradite him from Australia, where he was living at the time, on suspicion of Bernard's murder. Yet he must have been a person of interest as far back as 1977, because... Why would the woman be shown a photograph of him if he wasn't? Who the other two men allegedly using the suitcase were has never been suggested, indeed, nor has the reason explained why it took 10 years for the woman to come forward concerning what was a widely publicised piece of evidence in 1967 either. Following this, Reddington disappears off the radar somewhat and his movements through the rest of the 1970s and 1980s cannot be established. But he is reported to have died on the 29th of March 1995 at an address given simply as the Avenue in the Surrey district of Surbiton. He was 63 years old, although cause of his death is not recorded. Whether he was a permanent resident of the country at the time of his death, and if so, when he came back to the UK exactly, is also unknown, and there are no reports of Reddington ever being convicted of, or even charged with any crimes, apart from those he was accused of in 1965 and 1977. When the Freedom of Information request was released in 2004, it was revealed that Biles and Reddington were jointly suspected of a number of other sex crimes though, with one constant report involving the murder of a homosexual in London in 1973 after an apparent homosexual relationship. Now through much research, neither myself or Jess could find any unsolved case that would fit these criteria. Yet again, another example of the gaps in information and vagueness that seemed to dog the entire case when you come to research it. It may even be Chinese whispers or sensationalism that stem from the allegation that Biles confessed to once murdering and cutting up the body of a cabin boy, and now I'm inclined to think that this is more likely, because I believe that any serious suspicion of Biles and Reddington as being responsible for two gruesome murders plus the offences that they were alleged to have committed in both the UK and Australia, would have been enough to have them extradited at least, if not charged also. Yet they have been consistently linked with Bernard's murder. But is this easier to lie the potential blame at the feet of two dead suspects who can't answer either way? If Biles and Reddington were responsible for the terrible allegations levelled at them, then they would have been well steeped in the murky network of paedophilia, illicit underage sex and systematic abuse, one that Bernard could well have been drawn into. But surely they will have by no means been the only ones in that world. There's no way to suggest how far-reaching this network was. It would seem to be nationwide, even reaching as far as across Europe. However vile each of these men is suggested to be, and they are suggested to be vile, aren't they? The evidence against them for culpability in the murder of Bernard Oliver is circumstantial at best, and nothing definitive can tie either to the crime. Now I cannot point accusations in any way without definite evidence. You never get me saying, it was him, it was him, it was him. 
but the suspect Bileton Reddington would appear to be a good fit for the crime based on this circumstantial evidence. Both were alleged to have been involved in the abuse of young males over many years and had previous accusations as such levelled against them, although they were never convicted for any such offences. Both were medical doctors, thus having access to drugs, for example sedatives and muscle relaxants, which would surely be useful in homosexual orgies. They would have had a working knowledge of anatomy, and especially as Biles was reportedly a ship surgeon, he may have had experience conducting autopsies, thus would have possibly had experience in dissecting a human body. Both can be linked to the Muswell Hill area in the late 1960s, and they are reportedly prime suspects in another similar murder six years later, although details of this crime could not be found despite a thorough search, so it can't be substantiated. So with all of this circumstantial evidence, it's not a massive jump to think that Bernard could have been one of the young males who were allegedly lured to the surgery if the allegations were true, But again, there's little except strong suspicion to link them to the crime. And that just raises questions that we've asked here, such as why then kill and dismember Bernard? And why dump the body in Suffolk, in Tattingstone of all places? Are there then other crimes possibly committed by the same killer or killers? I think it's hard to believe that someone who could go to these lengths to dismember a body so perfectly and be so ruthless and calculating would never commit another crime. And if this is linked to the murky world that it's proclaimed to, the possibility is certainly there. So are the killer or killers of Bernard Oliver responsible for other murders or disappearances? Jess mentioned in her episode the disappearance of 18-year-old medical student Rosslyn Evans from Bristol in November 1965, which was looked at, and he was thought at first as being a possible match for Bernard's remains. But also mentioned as possibly being linked to Bernard's murder is the discovery in January 1967 of the skeletal remains in a shallow grave near Brighton of a youngster named Michael John Trower, who'd been missing since September the previous year. Detectives from the Tattingstone Inquiry reportedly liaised with those at Brighton investigating Michael's murder, but no further developments about this possible connection are available through research, and Michael's murder is still classed as unsolved. You can't say for sure that either are linked, but a study of missing persons around the time and locations that they vanished from may help to establish a bit of a geographical pattern. In what seems to be the theme of the episode, very little is actually available to research about either Michael or Rosslyn's cases, although what is available about each may feature in a future episode of the show. So what then can be ascertained about Bernard's killer or killers? There are no physical descriptions available, There is an artist's impression of a person of interest police wish to trace which will be included on the Instagram feed and in the Facebook groups, but which line of inquiry this impression stemmed from is yet another piece that is unable to be substantiated and it's a line of inquiry that never led anywhere at the time and one that's moot now anyway due to the passage of time. This killer wouldn't have been a teenager, I would estimate someone from 30 years old ascending. He or they were organised, they had a vehicle or access to one, and had some knowledge of the Suffolk area. They were able to at least initially appear non-threatening, they were most likely educated with medical knowledge, and knowledge of or experience in anatomy stroke autopsy. It would seem that Bernard's murder is destined to remain a cold case now, due to the passage of time. Any time the crime has been re-examined, nothing concrete has ever emerged, just more wild claims and vague reports that serve no more than to muddy the waters in the case. His killer or more likely killers are most likely long dead themselves by now, and the only possible chance of the case being resolved seemingly rests on two possibilities. A deathbed confession from the killer himself, or unearthing of some long ago written confession, or the possible chance that any evidence has been retained from the 1967 investigation, the suitcases, the hand towel found in the case, 
the boxer matches or the sports jacket. If any of these items have been retained, there exists the possibility today due to forensic advancement that a DNA profile may be obtained of whoever placed the jacket into the suitcase. If such a profile was obtained, it may be able to source a familial DNA match with a search of the National DNA Database. Of course, depending upon the items having been retained in the first place, a match being obtainable, and a matching sample being found on the National DNA Database. It's a lot to ask, and it kind of sums up the whole frustrating case, really. So the Tattingstone suitcase murder. As I'm sure you're now of the opinion, after hearing the episodes, it remains a crime that poses more questions than it provides solutions. And the frustrating gaps in the information available make it impossible to offer anything other than speculative theory. There are no reliable witnesses and lots of conflicting reports. There's no defined crime scene or confirmed time of death. There's no clear motive. And although there are suspects, sure, due to the passage of time, there's every reason to suspect that the perpetrators of the crime are themselves long dead now. If they are still alive, and it's possibly someone we've never mentioned, they will be very, very advanced in years themselves. At the start of Jess's episode on this one, we've explained about the gaps that we've run into whilst researching the crime, which I hope that you've taken from the episode here and Jess's, and it's one that if it's captured the imagination of the listener, that we invite you to go down the rabbit hole and look into and see the conclusion that you guys come to. Bernard Oliver rests today in a simple grave in an East Finchley cemetery, a simple epitaph on his gravestone reading, So sad was the day you were taken from us, you will always be in our hearts forever, dearest brother, always loved, never forgotten, R.I.P. And I'm sure he will never be forgotten, he certainly won't by his surviving family members who deserve some answers. And poor Bernard deserves to be remembered as being more than a chopped up body and a macabre picture in the newspapers. This has been an incredibly difficult case to research and write, but it is one that I've long wanted to cover, and it was one that me and Jess first discussed collaborating upon some months ago now, or a long time ago now. It's a horrific crime, even from what is known, I mean... You shudder to think of that poor lad's final hours, don't you? And to leave his body in such a degrading, undignified way, well, there are truly some evil people about. We all know that. I can't really say any more. I think what rankles with me the most, though, is that most likely now, Bernard's killer or killers are long dead and they never got to face justice for their crimes. It's never right, that, is it? And we have to be talking about crimes here. But who knows how many other victims were out there if this was part of some widespread paedophile network. What if Bernard or Michael Trower also were only a couple of the ones who were found? How many other poor people are out there undiscovered? I know this is a disturbing case with some disturbing content but neither myself nor Jess shy away from covering difficult cold cases such as this. Everybody deserves the same effort and believe me, I know that Jess has worked tirelessly on these episodes. I hope that you found both of them informative, interesting, but most of all, respectful. Please by all means get in touch with myself or with Jess concerning the episodes if you wish to discuss. There are always links up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook discussion group practice that Jess repeats over on the Outlines discussion group on Facebook also, and I have placed links to some fantastic and interesting articles concerning the case, and a couple of blog posts that were absolutely phenomenal use in creating this week's episode, in this week's episode show notes. We'd both love to hear any feedback that you may have about the episodes, and I'd like to take the opportunity to thank Jess and the Outlines team for working with the True Crime Enthusiast once again. Although this one's been a proper slog, we've both agreed. I always enjoy working with Jess, and we are tentatively now looking for yet another case to work together on, which we shall of course keep you posted about. 
So I'm off now to try to forget about severed heads, suitcases and sexual abuse. And I'm taking a week off next week. Creating the Carstairs trilogy, Tattingstone research and writing and the work and real life balance has all caught up with me a little bit this week. So I shall be back in two weeks time, all refreshed with a brand new episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I hope that you can join me then for it. I'll still be around in the meantime though, so you know I'm always lurking, never far away. So until then, this is Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Cheers for joining me all, take care, and goodbye for now.